Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is entitled Radiant Church, Verse by Verse through Titus. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. One bad apple spoils the bunch. You've probably heard this idiom before. Uh, Did you know that it's based on a centuries-old wives' kitchen tip? Hundreds of years ago, wives discovered that if you put a ripe apple in a sack of green bananas, overnight, the the bananas would ripe by morning. Scientists later discovered that uh, the reason this happens is that fruits such as apples and pears produce a gaseous hormone called ethylene that tells other nearby fruit to ripen more quickly and stop growing. Today, this idiom of one bad apple spoils the whole bunch is used in leadership circles most often. Uh, It's used to refer to difficult or negative people that spoil the attitude of the group. Athletic coaches, CEOs, small business owners, Managers, those that oversee people, human resources folks, school teachers, marine platoon leaders all know this principle because they've seen it play out. But as Solomon once wrote, there's nothing new under the sun. What leaders of all types have figured out about group dynamics, the Apostle Paul was writing about in the first century. One bad apple in the Lord's church can do great harm to the gospel and to the church. We're finishing our study today in the book of Titus called Radiant Church. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles with me to Titus chapter 3. The title of this message is One Bad Apple. Uh, comes from Titus chapter 3, verses 9 to 15. If you forgot your Bible, just raise your hand and one of our ushers will loan you one. We've got Bibles that we can loan you, that you can use. Uh, No need to be afraid. We want you to have a copy of God's Word in front of you. The book of Titus, you might remember, is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to his pastoral protege of the same name. Titus was left on the Mediterranean island of Crete to uh, do what seems to be mission impossible. To straighten up, and if necessary to clean house in a handful of new baby church plants. The main goal that the apostle had for Titus is also uh, our key verse for this series, and um, it's the inspiration for the name of the series. It comes from Titus chapter 2, verse 10. Uh, Let's read it out loud together one last time off the screen behind me, so that in every way we can make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. The apostle was very concerned about uh, the churches on Crete because they were doing things that were undermining the attractiveness of the gospel. So he does his best to coach Titus on how to help the Cretans uh, see that they were a part of something much bigger than just themselves. And how they conducted themselves mattered to the Lord. He saw it, and so did the outside world. Paul wanted them, and he wants us to see that the Lord paid a great price to make his church radiant. 
Therefore, radiant churches are to make the gospel attractive to an ugly world. In his letter, uh, he, in his letter, he's already mentioned the importance of strong leadership in chapter 1, uh, godliness in members in chapter 2, uh, good works uh, as a result of our love for Christ, and then humility, as all these things are keys to making this happen, being a radiant church that's attractive to an ugly world. So as Paul wraps up his letter at the end of Titus chapter 3, he gives one last insight or secret to church radiance, and that is protecting the church's unity. Thus, our big idea for today, or the sermon in a sentence, is a united church must have a zero tolerance for divisiveness. A united church must have zero tolerance for divisiveness. Our time today is going to mainly focus on uh, chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. As we read these verses, I really want to encourage you to see Paul's heart for the church. I really want to encourage you to see, uh, like a father who cares for his daughters and wants to protect them, or a new mother that uh, is holding a defenseless infant, I want you to see the Lord wants his church protected. He cares about his church. He wants it protected from fierce wolves that would try to divide the flock. And so in verse 9, Paul says, But avoid foolish controversies. If you would, follow along with me in your Bibles. Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Here's the first truth that we can glean from the text, and number one on your outline is uh, pride and spiritual immaturity damage and divide the Lord's church. When I, when I sit down to study a text and prepare a message, I, I spend about 15 to 20 hours um, reading through the passage, consulting different commentaries, and reading about the background, and praying over, and asking the Lord, what is this text saying? And, and one of the ways I get my major points is I ask, what's, what's the text saying about God, and what's it saying about man? And, and what we see here is that in, in point one, Paul is saying that pride and spiritual maturity damage and divide the Lord's church. Well, what were they dividing over? Well, verse 9 says genealogies. Uh, It's believed there were arguments going on in the Cretan churches about uh, the origin and descendants of church members, which supposedly had some political or spiritual significance. So they're, they're bragging about, oh yeah, well, my great-great-grandfather was so-and-so. Do you know, he was like the best Jew ever. Or he had this much land and he was this wealthy. Or my mother was this person. Or my third cousin. You know how it is where people like to sort of um, make themselves famous by associating with others from a distance. Oh yeah, I'm friends with LeBron James. Oh, you are? Yeah, I met him once. Really? When was that? Well, when I was six years old at a basketball camp. He gave me a fist bump. We're buddies. I could see you're really tight, you know. And 
So, so, so that, that's pride, obviously, in wanting to feel important, so we do that. And now, this is difficult for us to understand because family heritage is not as important to 21st century Americans as it was in first century cultures. Back then, family heritage was huge. It was jimongous, as some uh, kids would say. Back then, your family name and who you descended from were a big deal. They were also quarreling about the law, it says. Uh, the Greek word that Paul used here for um, quarrel, makos, implies the intensity of quarreling was going beyond just arguing with words. Uh, it, it implies there were fisticuffs happening in the churches. This particular word for quarrels, and there's many Greek words that can be used for quarrels, but Paul chose a word inspired by the Holy Spirit that was used to describe physical combat, especially of the military kind. Meaning, some of these arguments had gotten physical. Well, what were they coming to blows over? Well, Jewish commentaries mentioned that the quarrels most likely had to do with issues that would seem trivial to us, but they were a big deal to them especially those that had grown up in Jewish families and then gotten saved by putting their faith in Jesus Christ. A couple of examples were, should a Jew eat an egg on a festival day? Festivals were a big deal in their culture and in the Old Testament law. Or what sort of wick and oil should a Jew burn on the Sabbath? Honoring the Sabbath was very important to them. And so Paul writes that such arguments over genealogies and quarrels about the law, he says they are unprofitable and worthless. Some translations use um, useless or empty, uh, like a savings account with no money or a car tire that's flat or a battery of no charge. Paul is saying uh, such arguments were pointless and good for nothing. You just throw them out. They can't do anything for you. They, they can't even do what they're designed to do. Now, most American churches aren't going to quarrel over family history or Jewish law. But there is a lot of quarreling that still takes place in churches. And why is this important for you to know? Well, as we work hard and we pray hard and we give and sacrifice and serve to build this church into a great church that God can use here in Bakersfield, we need to be aware of what can cause quarreling and division in our church. Because you know as well as I do that one of the keys to um, ending an argument is knowing how to avoid one and, and not even engaging in it. And so uh, this is so important that uh, I know none of you want to be a part of a church split. Some of you have been there before. I've been part of one before, and it's not good. It's never good. God redeems it, and he can bring good out of it. But it's never his desire to see happen. So here are three common causes of modern of divisiveness in modern churches. Common causes of divisiveness in modern churches. This would be letters A, B, and C on your outline. Uh, three common ones that I see still happening today that did happen in the scriptures. The first one, and you've heard me mention this before, and I have repeated it because it's, it's, a most, it's probably the most common one, and that is A, elevating personal preferences above biblical convictions. Elevating personal preferences above biblical convictions. Paul taught in Romans 14 that mature Christians 
will know the difference between a personal preference or opinion, which should be flexible, and a biblical conviction, which should be non-flexible. It's based on truth, based on the truth of God's word. One, uh, one is subjective, our opinions are subjective, and they can vary. The other, God's word, is, is objective, it doesn't change, it doesn't vary. So not knowing the scriptures creates the following problem. Believers end up fighting over their preferences, but tolerating sin because they don't know God's word. They don't know what sin is. They end up being like Pharisees, like the Pharisees that Jesus rebuked. You might remember Jesus told them in Matthew chapter 23, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. You know you're in danger of being divisive when you talk more about your personal opinions than what you're learning in God's word. People that saturate themselves in God's word throughout the week and in prayer and apply it to their own heart generally talk a lot more about the Lord and what he's doing in their life. It just, it's like a cup that's just filled up and it just overflows. And when that cup is filled up with Jesus, it overflows with Jesus in their conversations. But when that cup is filled up with self, 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 it overflows with opinions, opinions. And I think and I feel, and I think and I feel, and did you know? And hey, let me just tell you. We all like to tell people what we feel, but we don't like to hear it too much. That's what's interesting about opinions. We want to share ours, but we don't want to hear anybody else's. This is probably an appropriate time to uh, bring up Augustine's famous quote. St. Augustine is known for saying, in the essentials, unity, in the non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. So, so Augustine, the early church father, was calling for a prioritization that, that keep the main thing the main thing. God's word, his truth, that's an essential. We've got to have unity, and it can be built around that because it's objective. It doesn't change from person to person. Uh, but in non-essentials, not as important things, things not based on God's word, we can show liberty to each other and all things charity. One mistake that I regret making in the past, and I've seen others do this too, and I'm, I'm guilty, is that I've been guilty at times of making everything essential. <laughs> I, I'm ashamed to admit that, and the Lord's helping me there to grow in my own discernment, but knowing the scriptures definitely helps. Here's a second most common cause of division in modern churches. B is complaining about problems instead of offering to help solve them. Complaining about problems instead of offering to help solve them. Uh, you might remember in Numbers chapter 13, this is where the people of Israel were in the wilderness, and so God told them to dispatch spies to go and, and check out the promised land, scout it out, the, the land that God had promised Canaan for his people. And although the land was still occupied, Caleb said, and I'm going to paraphrase here. Caleb said, the, the, the land is everything that God said it is, and let's go take it because God is with us. However, there were the rest of the spies who gave a negative report and said, oh, it's a huge army occupying the land, and we're like grasshoppers to them. They're, they're huge, and we're just so small. There's no way we'll die if we try and go take that promised land. So this causes fear to spread amongst the people. 
in Numbers 13. But the beginning of Numbers 14, the entire congregation, it says in the text, complained so much that they tried to overthrow Moses and then elect a new leader to go back to Egypt where they were in slavery and had cried out to the Lord for centuries to be released from. They decided they wanted to go back to where they were. Well, this upset the Lord, as you can imagine, and there's only one reason an entire congregation could gain such strength to revolt like that. That is, the doubting spies went and built their posse and said, hey, 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 you believe us, right? You're not going to listen to that Caleb guy. I mean, you know, Caleb, he's from that other family. You know, they're kind of weird anyway, so you shouldn't listen to them. And, and you know, my family, we've been buddies a long time. You know, I would never lie to you. I'm telling you, if we go to this promised land, it's not going to end well. You know, and I don't know if God's really with us anymore. Look how hard it's been in the wilderness. Those kinds of things got spread. And bad news spreads faster than the truth. And thus, their faithless assessment influenced the congregation. They built a coalition, and they rebelled against the Lord's anointed leader, Moses. We're told later that the Lord's anger burned against his people because of their unbelief. And then in Numbers 14, the Lord wanted them to believe Caleb and act in faith to move in the promised land, but instead they earned a consequence because of their complaining unbelief. And the Lord says in Numbers 14, verse 34, Every one of you is going to miss out on the promised land, except Caleb and his family. And instead, you're going to spend one year for each day the spies were gone. The spies were gone 40 days scouting the land. And that's how the people of Israel got 40 years sentenced in the wilderness, where an entire generation died off because divisive spies didn't want to trust the Lord. Now, I know we're not looking at a promised land or anything like that to conquer here, but here's an example today of how this kind of complaining divisiveness plays out, and sadly I've seen it happen a few times. Uh, An unhappy person in the church will uh, try to build a coalition by CCing their friends on an email to church leadership. The friends have nothing to do with the issue, but they CC them because I just want all of you to know as well that I'm sending this negative email to the pastor or the elders, and I want you to know so that you're on board with me as well, and you can get upset about this too, so then it's not just me, but it's, hey, it's all of us feel this way. Or maybe it's a text. Instead of honoring the Lord and following Scripture and bringing those concerns privately and and addressing them face to face. Here's a third common um, cause of division in modern churches, and that's criticizing church leaders and members. In 2 Samuel 15, King David's son Absalom did great damage to the kingdom by sitting at the city gate while his father was sitting on the throne. And so Absalom, so filled with himself and pride, he sat at the city gate as people in the kingdom would come and go out of the city, doing their business and their traveling. And he would say, you know, if I was king, I would do this. You know, if I was king, you, you wouldn't be struggling financially. If I was king, I would have soldiers in your neighborhood protecting you. Or if I was king, you'd be promoted in my uh, leadership team. 
It says in 2 Samuel chapter 15 that after spreading his venom to the naive people for a while, Absalom, quote, stole the hearts of the people. 200 men in particular, and led a rebellion against his father. Eventually, Absalom's sin caught up to him when he rode under a tree and he got his head caught in the branches and hung himself. Now, I want to clarify something here. This doesn't mean that church leaders and church members are above criticism or correction. However, what you criticize and how you do it matters to the Lord. In short, concerns should be raised face-to-face and in private. And if it's not important enough to bring up face-to-face, then it shouldn't be spoken of. You need to let it go. Um, if someone came to me to criticize you, the first question I would ask is, well, have you talked to this person about that? I mean, don't bring it to me. I, I, have you talked to them? Have you gone to them, Matthew 18 says that if they've sinned against you, you need to go speak to them directly. Uh, I trust you would do the same for me and the rest of our leaders as well. But here's the thing. Whether you are a uniter or a divider in the Lord's church will be determined in large part by whether you put yourself or the church first. I want to say that again so you, you... You can hear that. Whether you are a uniter or a divider in this church will be determined in large part by whether you put yourself or the church first. So uh, application, we want to be doers of God's word here, so I try my best to just give examples of how could we implement this practically into our uh, daily lives. And here's one uh, application that comes to mind. The Holy Spirit might give you some others. Uh, But following Jesus must remain the main thing. Following Jesus must remain the main thing. If if we all continue growing our relationship with Jesus Christ, learning God's word, clothing ourselves with humility, having fewer opinions, it will reduce the possibility of our church being divided. It's not a guarantee, but it certainly reduces the odds. Unity is one of the reasons we place a high value on membership here at Vanguard. Our membership class lays out our vision and values and beliefs so that uh, those that are praying about making Vanguard their church home kind of know, here's who we are. We don't want there to be any surprises. We put it in writing for you. We put it up on a keynote screen. We're here to answer questions. And and if this is something that fires you up and you want to be a part of this, then we'd love to have you. And if not, then this isn't the place for you, and that's okay. There's a membership covenant that many of you have signed. That was designed not only to protect you, but to protect the church. Unity is also one of the reasons why we have an addendum to our doctrinal statement here at Vanguard. It's called Issues for Clarification. It's on our website, and it's in our bylaws. In essence, the Issues for Clarification is um, it's a list of items, kind of second-tier doctrinal issues that... Um, well, not all of them are second tier, some are first tier, but um, they are issues that evangelical churches have fought about and divided over in the past. And so when we started this church, myself and our our network elder board um, put down in writing what we believe about these issues, like baptism, the role of women in the church, spiritual gifts, marriage, human sexuality, 
creation and evolution, so on and so forth. These are things that evangelicals have fought over. And so we decided to put in writing, look, we, we've looked at the scriptures, and here's our best assessment of what we think God's word says on these particular issues. And we're going to put it in writing and say, this is what we believe, because we're not going to fight over these things. We're being preventative. We, we, we are not going to argue. We'll, we'll dialogue. We can dialogue. We can explain. We can clarify. But we're not going to fight over these things. This is what we believe on these particular issues. And they tend to be hot-button ones. So, um, we need to follow. Following Jesus must remain the main thing. Why? Because a united church must have zero tolerance for divisiveness. Here's number two. The second thing that Paul tells us is that divisiveness must be lovingly confronted and sometimes disciplined. Divisiveness must be lovingly confronted and sometimes disciplined. In verse 10, he says, the person who stirs up division brings to mind the word picture of a, of a recipe or a, a mixing bowl. They're stirring something up. They're having to work at it. They're, 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 they're networking in the congregation. The Greek word that Paul uses here is the same one from which we get heretic. The word means one who makes a choice or a person who stirs up division. It's, it describes someone who goes around the church forcing others to make a choice. Are you with me or are you with the pastor on this issue? Or don't you think we should get a better looking small group leader than we have? <laughs> hey, you heard that we're building a new building, for example. This is a hypothetical, but we're building a new building. Don't you think there should be lava lamps in the new building? I mean, I think so. Doesn't a lava lamp illustrate the verticality of worship and the ebb and flow of the Holy Spirit between heaven and earth? I mean, come on. Of course, I'm using humor to make a point. These are some of the ridiculous things that divisive people go to war over. Seriously, Paul is, he's not only referring to false teachers, but those that spread dissension, disgruntlement, petty doctrine, malicious gossip, slander, those that undermine established leadership and organize political power plays. You don't hear this as much as I do, but pastors talk about this uh, uh, in, in the pastoral industry, for lack of a better word. We, we know and we talk about there are certain churches around the country that are run by one or two families. They hold all the money in the church. They have maybe two or three generations in the church. And they will divide, if necessary, to maintain control of the church. So they're not actually in leadership, but they are the influencers in the church. And they even have reputations, some of these churches, for chewing up and spitting out pastors. They just go through them and go through them and go through them. Because no pastor is good enough. And if you don't do what we say, we will stir the pot and run you out. Here's a, just to get a sense of God's heart on this issue, to clarify some things. I, like to, I love high definition, so if you would, keep your finger in Titus 3 and turn with me to Proverbs 16. Um, Proverbs 16. We're going to look at verses 16 to 19. I just want to show you what the Lord says about this specifically. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19.
Solomon writes, uh, there are six things that the Lord hates, very strong word, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, verse 17. A lying tongue and hands that shed innocent blood. Verse 18, a heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies. And then lastly, in verse 19, one who sows discord among brothers. The Lord sees it. The Lord hates it. Notice the sowing, use of the word in the ESV, uh, it, it, it's just the planting of seeds that take root. It's the, the spreading of little comments and suggestions here and there. I believe the Lord hates it, though, and calls it an abomination because it reminds him of the evil one. It reminds him of the adversary. You might remember the Bible tells us that Satan... At one time, it was an angel that divided heaven by taking one-third of the angels with him when he fell. Revelation chapter 12 talks about that. So just like Darth Vader in Star Wars, the adversary takes advantage of weak-minded believers by persuading them to cause division, just like he did. So he's behind it, but he leverages and plays on Spiritual maturity and pride to get it done. So what are we supposed to do with a person that is stirring up division in the church? Just let them tear the church apart? No, Paul says to Titus, after warning him, verse 10, look at your Bibles. The original language is talking about a strong word of correction, an admonishment to somebody that is out of line. After warning him, I've noticed in my 20 years of local church ministry that... (laughs) There are at least two problems with confrontation to the church. Not enough people are willing to do it, and even fewer think they need it. Author and pastor Dr. Tony Evans tells a story one day of driving down a one-way street and while noticing that someone else was driving towards him in the opposite direction. He writes, uh, obviously there was a problem. Uh, that car was going the wrong way. But as I kept driving, I heard several sounds all around me and noticed people yelling at me. After a while, it became clear that several bystanders were trying to get my attention. and They were trying to confront me with the reality that I was the one that was wrong, Tony Evans writes. You see, I thought everybody else had the problem when I was actually the one with the problem. I eventually realized that there were two reasons for their concern. One is the damage I could do to myself driving the wrong way on a one-way street. The other was the damage I could do to others. These bystanders could have simply ignored my reckless driving and absent-mindedness and said, that's, well, that's his business. If he wants to drive like that, we'll just, he can drive like that. We don't want to offend him in any way. I mean, this is a free country. You can drive that way if you want, and then the police will deal with it. Or, Evans writes, they could try to get my attention because they understood this universal truth. When you're going the wrong way, somebody needs to confront you because you may not know it. And that gives you the opportunity to reverse your direction. So, 
Paul says, warn this person one or two times at least. And then, if they don't listen, if they don't repent of their divisiveness, of their complaining and their gossip and their slandering, whatever it is they're doing, or being unsubmissive, or fighting to hold on to a ministry that they started 30 years ago, or fighting to keep their portion of the church budget money, whatever it is, Paul says, have nothing more to do with them. The word used in the original language means to reject or to shun or avoid. This isn't the only place that the apostle gave such instruction. He told the Corinthians to do the same in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He told the Thessalonians to do the same in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And he told Timothy, who was in Ephesus at the time, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, that this is how you deal with someone who's been confronted lovingly and firmly and refuses to repent. Now, this is as difficult for me to say as it is for you to hear because the thought of going, what, we would abandon somebody? We would leave them? I understand, that's, that's hard to hear and it's hard for me to say. But let's do our best to see the Lord's heart and wisdom here in the text The intent is to put pressure on the unrepentant person uh, by isolating them and removing their relationships so that hopefully they see their sin. The, The intent is both informal and formal in church discipline here. Informal church discipline takes place when when you as a member tell another member that you've already confronted a couple of times, hey, in in love. I'm not going to be able to spend time with you anymore until you repent and deal with this issue. You need to go back and apologize to so-and-so because what you said about them was sinful and wrong. It was slander. And you refuse to see it. And we've had a couple conversations about this. And I love you too much to let you keep doing that. And I love the church too much. Formal discipline takes place when the elders get involved as loving shepherds charged with protecting the church and actually ask someone to leave the church. Now, this should be a last resort after several meetings and attempts and prayer. It, I think of it as a, when removing somebody, I think of it like the, uh, kind of in the movies, like the big red nuclear launch button. It's like, don't touch that button or that switch until all diplomacy has failed because there's always shrapnel that comes. In his book, uh, you'll love this title, It was so compelling it got me to buy the book. What they didn't teach you in seminary. Sign me up. I want that book. (laughs) But it's so great a title because it's true. It's a book on pastoral leadership and uh, written by a pastor uh, from the East Coast named James Emery White. In the book, he painfully describes tolerating a divisive staff member for a couple of years. And he says this staff member set back the growth of their church, three years. He said it took three years for our church to recover from the damage of this pastoral staff member. White eventually fired the staff member, but wrote this about the difficulty of pulling the trigger. I thought this quote was great, and I wanted to share it with you. From his book, What They Didn't Teach You in Seminary. What the Bible says to do here in Titus 3.10 is counterintuitive as you could possibly imagine. It doesn't even feel legal. Churches like to teach what the Bible says about everything else and apply it, but for some reason, the clear directives about dealing with problem people in our lives are either ignored or just so uncomfortable that we refuse to consider it. 
Now again, I, I, out of risk that some of you are sitting here going, oh man, wish I hadn't come to church today. This is a checkout Sunday. Doesn't have any, this message has nothing to do with me. Doesn't apply to me. Doesn't meet me where I'm at. Well, at the risk of you thinking that, uh, let me try again to answer the question why this is so important for you to get. These verses are a humbling reminder that the Lord considers the mission of the church and the gospel message more important than any one individual. These verses might answer the question as to why you went through a painful church split. It may have been that there were incompetent or fearful elders in that church that didn't do the right thing. Titus 3.10 says, if you're going to hurt the team, then you don't get to be on the team anymore. It's the Lord saying in Titus 3.10, when you are divisive, you tear down what I am trying to build up. And there are plenty of verses that talk about the Lord trying to build his church. So, so Titus 3.10 is saying don't be careless with your mouth in your conversations after church, when you're setting up, when you're tearing down, when you're rehearsing, when you're meeting as a small group, when you're running each other in public. God hears what you say. And he says in Titus 3.10, don't tear down what I am trying to build up. I hate it. It's an abomination. Well, yeah, but we were just having a casual conversation in the produce aisle at the grocery store. No, you weren't. You were being divisive, is what the Lord is saying here. And you know as well as I do, people are attracted to unity. We want to be. Look at the news this weekend. There's more cries for unity, but also more protesting. The world can't find an answer to unity, but the church has the answer. It's through faith in Jesus Christ and being committed to God's word, the truth of God's word. The church is able to be unified, and there are even instructions on how to protect the unity right here in Titus 3. So we're to be different than the world. And the Lord wants and offers a way to be part of something that's unified, which we all crave in our souls. But we all play a part in building that unity. So, application. Boy, I thought you'd never get there, Carrie. Well, hold each other accountable. Hold each other accountable. Both Colossians 3.16 and 1 Thessalonians 5.14 say that we as church members are to admonish each other when necessary. It's not just the pastor's or elder's jobs. That means that when one of us is spewing unwholesome, unwholesome talk, we must be willing to do what feels uncomfortable and illogical while trusting the Lord with the results. We must be willing to put the church before that person and make the church more important than our relationship with them. However, when we avoid loving biblical confrontation, what we are saying is that we fear men more than we fear the Lord and that we love our relationships more than the people we have them with. The adversary works very hard to convince us that accountability is unloving. Yet, over and over and over again, it comes up in the New Testament. 
God's word calls accountability one of the most loving things we can do for each other. So, hold each other accountable to this. Protect the church that you're praying and fighting hard to build. Don't let somebody tear it down. Lastly, number three, disciplining divisive people protects the Lord's church. Disciplining divisive people protects the Lord's church. Again, this is like a last resort. Paul is saying after one, two attempts at least, in my experience, it's usually been like eight to ten attempts to meet and talk to the person and engage with them. It's several, several like attempts at diplomacy to where after all else has failed, the elders and I, and I've had to do this in other churches, uh, just sort of go, okay, we've spent a year on this guy. Time to move on. We, we don't, he still won't repent and get right with the Lord, and he won't submit to church leadership. And never, ever have I been part of an elder team that relished in disciplining somebody out of the church. I can tell you those meetings are gut-wrenching, and it's like, oh, we really wish we didn't have to do this. Why we, I wish we did, but God's word says we have to. Why couldn't this guy just repent? Why? And then we got to go home and try to sleep on this. Those are always the worst meetings that I've had to be a part of. So Paul says in verse 11, knowing in the ESV, it captures a key word from the original that some translations miss. Um, the original language uses a Greek word, oida, which means to know or to understand or perceive. I think what Paul is saying here, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. I think what Paul means here is that because you should know or because you already know what he's about to say next. It's sort of an assumption. I mean, you already know this person is warped. They're self-condemned. Warped comes from the Greek word um, extrepho, which means to twist or turn inside out. It, it's important to know that neither Paul nor the Lord makes excuses for this person's sin. Paul doesn't go, you know, he's had a hard year. Or, you know, she, she grew up in a rough family, so it's okay to let her be divisive and run her mouth like that. No, 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 there's no excuses for the sin. Paul says, if they've chosen not to listen to fellow church members and church leaders, they are self-condemned. When I was a kid, um, I won't mention which decade I grew up in, but um, I loved music, and so I collected vinyl records from a lot of my favorite artists. Now, one of the drawbacks for those of you that, and I know this is most of you, you were not around when vinyl records were, were here. Most of you were under the age of 30. So um, one of the drawbacks of vinyl records as a medium is that if you weren't careful, they could warp on you. Uh, this uh, was most commonly was caused by exposure to high temperatures. So, for example, taking your records over to your buddy's house, your girlfriend's house for a sleepover and leaving them in the car on a hot summer day, they would warp. Well, warped records often had to be thrown out because they could no longer be used anymore without damaging your turntable. As you can see in the picture there, the needle would, would bounce and skip and the record wouldn't play like it should. You can't listen to a warped record anymore. Well, in a similar sense, a divisive person, 
that has refused to repent after being confronted a few times, well, they shouldn't be listened to anymore. They must be removed from the church so that others aren't damaged as well. So, application, our last one. Distance yourself from divisive people. Paul is saying that they are not good for you or your walk with the Lord. Again, this is as difficult for me to say as it is for you to hear, but the tendency, I've heard some people think this way, is, well, I'm going to stay in touch with this person so I can try to influence them back into the church. But actually, that thinking is not wise because it's sort of enabling. The very thing that's supposed to help bring them to repentance is the removal of relationships and creating some distance, sort of like a timeout with a child. And it's supposed to bring them to repentance, but if you continue to keep in touch with that person because you don't want to lose the relationship, you're actually giving them a benefit of being in the church that they're not supposed to have now that they're out of the church. That's why Paul says, have nothing else to do with them. Again, after multiple attempts, don't, don't have nothing else to do with them when you've never talked to them about their sin. They might be like, hey, how come you don't call me anymore? You don't return my text. Paul said, I should have nothing else to do with you. <laughs> Why? I don't know. Just I'm not supposed to have anything else to do with you. <laughs> don't, don't do that. You're supposed to talk to them about the issue. 1 Corinthians 15.33, Paul says to the Corinthians, don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Bad company corrupts good character. So, a united church must have zero tolerance for divisiveness. Before we close uh, in prayer, I wanted to share this unforgettable insight from A.W. Tozer on unity. I, I found this last night as I was finishing up my message. Um, so if you could just listen and to what Tozer is saying. He writes, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which one, each one must individually bow. So are 100 worshipers meeting together, each looking away to Christ. They are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly have been were they to become conscious of unity and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. So as we leave today, I want to encourage you to fight for unity and to remember pianos tuned to one fork are closer than any piano trying to be in fellowship with each other. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, these are difficult words to study. I uh, wish I could skip passages like this when preaching through a book. And yet knowing the people that are in our church, Lord, that are good students of the word, if I was to skip a passage, they would probably come up to me and say, hey, how come you didn't talk about this? But Lord, we are committed as a church to preaching the whole counsel 
of your word. Uh, meaning, we, Lord, we know we're supposed to teach and talk about and study the parts we like and the parts we don't like. Father, I just I want to pray for just our church and knowing that many people here have come from other churches too. Lord, would you really just show them if, if they've been divisive here or if, if maybe they were divisive in another church, Lord, would you just reveal that to them so that they can repent of that and ask for your forgiveness? If, if maybe they've been careless with their words and said things they shouldn't have said. Father, um, would you help our church to be fiercely committed to unity, to, to put Christ and this church first above our own needs? Lord, for those that have been hurt by church division, and I know I've heard some of the stories from Vanguard members from their past of horrific events they've seen in churches. And Lord, please, would you protect Vanguard from ever going through something like that? But Lord, also, would you heal and restore and redeem and bring good out of that? Lord, thank you for loving our church and other churches enough to put this teaching in scriptures. Thank you, Lord, for wanting to protect us from hurting each other, from hurting the work of the gospel. And I pray, Father, that if there is anyone here today or listening online that doesn't know Christ as their Savior, and maybe one of the reasons they don't know Jesus is that, well, just the churches they've been to have been a mess or hypocrites or divided. Lord, would you somehow overcome that obstacle and help them to see that Christ died for their sins and loves them and wants a relationship with them. We pray all this in his powerful name. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.